Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the Buker and Friends podcast. Here is your host. Let's send it over to Rick Buker. Rick Buker. Welcome to, yes, another coronavirus episode of Buker Friendless, subsidiary of Buker and Friends and part of the United Wecast Network. I'm Rick Buker. You can see me on FS1, you can hear me on Fox Sports Radio. And you can read me by ordering the memoir of Brian Grant and his battle with young onset Parkinson's called Rebound. Pre-ordered copies are available now on Amazon. You can also follow me on both Twitter and Instagram at Rick Buecher. I'm a lot of places. But there's only one place you can hear me talking about story angles and perspectives that you are not likely to find anywhere else, primarily but not exclusively involving the NBA. And that is here. And as I said at the top, this is a Buker friendless episode. We haven't had one in a while. And I apologize that this episode is actually coming out uh, a day or two late. I've been extremely busy with my TV duties, blah, blah, blah. You don't want to hear that. But I've had a lot going on, uh, both in front of the camera and uh, elsewhere. All that said, I am very excited to uh, to broach this subject. It's something that's near and dear to my heart. And it is Draymond Green. Uh, Draymond Green, the power forward, now center for the Golden State Warriors, part of their championships, one of the most unique players we've ever seen. I believe the uh, the key to the small ball run that the Warriors had, his ascension, uh, over David Lee when David Lee uh, hurt his hamstring and was out. Draymond Green was a second round pick, was getting some run, but clearly coming off the bench. A lot of money invested in David Lee, uh, established veteran, and then got hurt and they had no choice but to go to Draymond and they found something. It was by accident, trust me. But what they found was a guy who could defend bigger players, much bigger players, had the, the IQ, the strength, and the willingness to play bigger players, and yet could also ball handle and pass and direct your offense. So it began the era of using smaller guys at the power positions and then using them as point forwards uh, so that they were stopping the bigs at one end rebounding, leading the break, getting you into either quick twos or early threes, and it just changed the landscape, and it really blew the game open as far as the Warriors are concerned. 
the Warriors in the NBA, that is. And this is not to take anything away from the contributions and the significance of Steph Curry and Clay Thompson. Uh, they certainly were integral to the success. I just believe that the unique factor as far as what the Warriors became and the way the league plays now, Draymond Green had the most to do with the change. I'm in no way saying that there wasn't small ball before the Warriors of the 2014 through 1819 stretch. Uh, Don Nelson played small ball, but with guys like Tom Tolbert, they didn't rebound and bring the ball up. They didn't initiate the break. They were simply stretch fours or guys who had the ball at the top to draw the bigs out that would normally be covering the basket and then had to defend, do the best that they could defend at the other end. Uh, same with Mike D'Antoni and the Phoenix Suns. They certainly played an up-tempo game. They played a, a smaller lineup, but Amari Stoudemire was not bringing the ball up. Uh, Sean Marion was not bringing the ball up. That was the distinction. Everything was just sped up as a result of Draymond's ability to rebound, to defend, and then lead the break, and then run the offense as a masterful passer, even in half-court sets. So why do I bring all this up? Because Draymond lost more than a game when he received the two technical fouls the other night with 9.3 seconds left, and ultimately cost the Warriors a game they were in position to win against the Charlotte Hornets. He lost his authority. Look, this has been a rough year for Draymond. I understand his frustration. The Warriors are not what they once were, not even close. And Draymond is not what he once was, not even close. The margin of error that the Warriors have is markedly thin. He and Steph have to be simply great to beat the mediocre teams. They've got a roster full of players that are just good enough to be in the NBA but without a discernible strength or skill that you can count on every night. Playing with Andrew Wiggins and Kelly Oubre also has to be tremendously frustrating at times because they simply don't understand the attention to detail that is necessary if you're playing for a championship. Now, the Warriors are not, but Draymond in particular is dedicated. I mean, honestly, it's a big reason why he was able to have the success that he's had. His understanding of what to do and when and how to do it is why a tweener forward with no discernible advantage athletically is able to become an all-star and a key part of a championship team. And I, for Oubre and Wiggins, I hold them in higher regard maybe than I ever have. But you can tell that they spent their formative years in the league playing for teams where every possession was not valued. Attention to detail, being in the right place at the right time was never emphasized. So they're doing their best, but they're having to develop those muscles and that mental acuity playing that way all the time. In their current roles, they're complementary players. So they have to bring energy all the time. They have to bring attention to detail all the time. I know I keep harping on that, but that is such a key part of 
championship teams and the way the Warriors in particular want to play. Uh, also have to avoid being distracted by their own personal agendas in terms of what they want to get or their battles on the floor. And again, that's something that when you're a star player, you can indulge in. Andrew Wiggins and Kelly Oubre for the for the roles that they have now with the Warriors simply can't. And then there's other guys on the roster who simply aren't good enough to be able to do what the Warriors need them to do or play the way that the Warriors are used to playing. And I'm sure that's going to frustrate Draymond too, but I also am sure that he realizes that they are doing the best they can. Now, as you probably know, Draymond has since apologized for getting the two techs and blowing the game. And I never doubted that he would recognize that he screwed up and own up to it. It is what makes him one of my favorite players. There's no artifice with him or false bravado. He's going to tell you what he thinks and he has integrity when it comes to how the game should be played and how he plays it. I've known him since he came in the league. I guess this, this is what makes it unique and intimate for me in seeing what's going on with, with him now is that I saw him come in as a second round pick when he was just trying to make the team. He was just trying to prove that he belonged in the NBA. It was also a homecoming and a change for me of sorts. I had been at ESPN forever, uh, 14 years, and decided to come home uh, to raise my kids and travel less. So I took a radio show and then the Warriors reached out to me and asked if I would be their sideline reporter. And it was, I started out my career as a beat writer covering the Warriors. So uh, it was kind of a cool thing to do. And I had never been around one specific team as a national guy for, for ESPN. I would parachute in and I would get to know teams on a you know three, four, five day basis. Uh, I would be around the best teams a lot, but I hadn't been embedded with a particular team like a beat writer is. And so... I was glad to do that. I was glad to have a refresher course on watching one specific team uh, evolve and following the storylines of one particular place. Even if it didn't catch national attention, you learn or you're reminded a lot of how the NBA works in general and how teams operate in particular. And this was a very timely moment for me to come back because uh, Mark Jackson came in and they made a concerted effort to change the dynamic of the team. Joe Lacob, no ownership, new ownership came in and they, th those were the building blocks for what ultimately became a championship organization. And I saw them put those first building blocks in place. I saw how they changed the attitude. I saw how Mark changed the attitude. Jared Jack, Jermaine O'Neal, Carl Landry, and Steph and Clay embracing what they were being taught and how they turned that whole ship. And I saw Draymond's place in it. I've said it before, and I will hold to it, that I don't believe that Steph, Clay, and Draymond individually in other places would have had the same level of success without the other two. The dynamic of their chemistry, the dynamic of their personalities, the dynamic of their skill set worked to a T. Steph is not a vocal leader. He's a leader by example. Clay 
Kind of wants to do his own thing. He's quiet, but ultra confident. They needed somebody who was a rabble rouser. They needed somebody who was vocal, who was going to hold everybody accountable in a very vocal way. And that's what Draymond did. And he reaped the rewards. The individual accolades, the money, the commercials, the visibility. He got it all. Made the most of it. Now, the tricky part of the NBA and the business of the NBA is that the smart teams pay players based on what they think they are able to do in the future. Some of that is based on what they've done in the past. But a big part of it is projection. You want to pay a guy, you want to anticipate that they are going to be great, so you pay them great money. The harsh truth is Draymond Green is now getting paid great money and he's not a great player. Some of that is because he's always been a byproduct of the players around him. He can make really good players, great players, even better. That's his unique gift. But what he is demonstrating is that he can't necessarily make mediocre players very good or great. What I've learned in my business, and I believe this applies to any, that if you will do anything for a considerable amount of time, if you want to last in your profession or your industry, I've had to learn how to adapt, to be flexible, to reinvent myself. And that is what I believe that Draymond is up against and is not showing a particular talent for. When he took the when he received the two technicals the other night and basically gave the game away, he lost something irretrievable by going off on the referees at the expense of winning the game. Something that I can say I don't remember him ever doing before. Yes, he's had untimely technicals. Yes, he's put the Warriors at a disadvantage. But I couldn't directly tie the result to what he did. And oftentimes, and this is where it gets tricky, whether it's with a, a coach or the unique role that, that Draymond had with the Warriors, sometimes a guy getting a technical uh, actually works out. You may sacrifice a point or a possession, but you're also gaining something by lighting a fire uh, under your teammates, under your team collectively or even simply putting an official on notice because they don't want to give you a second technical either. And maybe once the moment has passed, I know in many cases, the referee will consider it as they go on, or if it happens in the first half, they'll look at tape at halftime and they'll recognize the guy had a legitimate reason for being upset. And they will try to balance things out or they'll try to adjust so there is value not every technical is not necessarily completely negative or counterproductive and I would include the swing at LeBron James private parts in the NBA finals when LeBron stepped over him now, that was a contributing factor because he ultimately was suspended for a game 
But I, look, being suspended for that couldn't have been anticipated. And as I see it, the way he reacted was perfectly natural. That was a miscarriage of justice by the league in the same way that when Steve Nash got chucked into the scorer's table by the Spurs' Robert Ori, and because there was a rule you couldn't leave the bench area, and Boris Diaw and Amari Stoudemire, seeing their point guard and MVP and most valuable player in every sense of the word, get chucked into the scorer's table, they jumped off the bench and took a step. They didn't get involved in a fracas. They didn't engage with anybody. They simply walked toward Ori and Nash. And as a result, in invoking the letter of the law, both Boris Diaw and Amari Stoudemire were suspended for the next game. Robert Ori got a two-game suspension, but it wasn't a fair trade-off. And who initiated it? Who instigated it? The Spurs and Robert Ori did. And yet, that's the way that the league saw fit to legislate that situation. I am still convinced that if that doesn't happen, the Suns are ultimately winning that series. We will never know. Nonetheless, I feel as if Draymond being suspended for Game 6 as a result of the Game 5 incident is in the same line. The idea that he should be suspended a game after already receiving a technical in that particular game uh, for, for the movement. Look, any man, less any man in a competitive situation, less any man in the midst of trying to win a championship... Lest any man who knows he's the underdog in a fight with a guy who calls himself king, as Draymond was, is going to take kindly to being disrespected. And let's make no mistake, that's what LeBron did by straddling Draymond in that situation. Just think about how much abuse over the years Ty Lue has had to take because of Allen Iverson's infamous step over. And I dare say, Ty wouldn't have taken nearly as much abuse if he had not accepted being stepped in, stepped over so readily and reacted in some way, shape, or form. Look, I'm all for sportsmanship and not letting emotion distract from the job at hand. But in that instance, I wouldn't have blamed Lou for a verbal or physical FU. That might say something about me, but so be it. Draymond's situation in the game against Charlotte was different. There was nothing to be gained at that point by challenging the refs. We're talking about the final seconds. He took his eye off the prize, the task at hand, simply to vent. And what it cost him is more than a game. It cost him his moral authority when it comes to doing the right thing, the little things, the sacrificial things that are essential to winning. Look, it takes discipline to make hard cuts on every possession and be in the right place every time on defense. And that's what Draymond is asking of the Warriors' new non-championship winning additions. And it's a discipline that he himself did not display at the end of the Charlotte game. Now, you may think I'm overblowing this, but that, or, or that it's just one incident. That his reaction was understandable. That his teammates will forgive and forget. Yes, you're right. They may forgive, but they will not forget. That's how an NBA locker room works. That's because any player, keep in mind, 
Any player who makes it to the NBA already has had a lifetime of success. If you're relating a player joining the Warriors to you joining your high school team or even going to college and playing at the collegiate level, it's different. These are all players who have had a lifetime of success, more than, I mean, a very small percentage of athletes have the success necessary to make it to the NBA. They've already been stars several times over. And certain things they've done have worked to get them to the NBA. And all the perks that come with reaching that level, accomplishing that achievement. For someone, be it a coach or a GM or a fellow player, it takes a really convincing argument to get those players to buy in to someone else's formula for success. This isn't, as I said, this isn't a kid making his high school team or even an AAU, AAU program or landing a collegiate scholarship. Those are all generally situations where a player has shown potential, enough potential that the team or coach thinks they can be something more than they already are. And that is what the player is hoping for as well. I'm not saying players don't develop in the NBA or that they aren't signed for their potential. Not at all. In fact, it's true. Many, many players are picked knowing that they can't play as well right now as they can down the line. It's just harder in some cases to get that player to understand what it is they need to learn or accept, what they don't do well, and how they need to improve. That's the, that's the vital element here. It's not that they don't know that they need to improve. It's how they need to improve and what they need to improve in. Look at the Warriors' James Wiseman. He played all of three games in college. He is extremely talented, and he has defied those who suggested that uh, when the knock on him coming out was people questioned his motor, how hard he would be willing to play. I like everything that I've seen about him to this point. He's, he, he plays hard. He seems willing. Uh, he's still extremely unrefined in his understanding of the game, but he's better right out of the gate than I thought he would be. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. You'd think if you ever had a blank canvas or someone willing to learn, it would be a player with Wiseman's relative lack of experience coming to a team with players who have done what Draymond Green and Steph Curry and even Kevon Looney have done. 
You would think that. And I believe that Wiseman does want to learn. I do believe that he looks at them and says, you guys know the game better than I do. What can you teach me? And yet, Wiseman lost his starting role because he didn't fully grasp how he had to play as the Warriors' starting center. You could just see it at times where he was trying to think the game between what he was told to do and what his instincts told him to do. And if you hesitate, you are lost when it comes to playing the NBA. Warriors coach Steve Kerr can claim all he wants that it wasn't a demotion to bring Wiseman off the bench in order to protect, and the reason he would say that is to protect Wiseman or not discourage him. But that doesn't mean everybody in the media has to parrot that shaky supposition. It's okay for Kerr to say it, and it's okay for the media to identify it as spin for the benefit of Kerr's relationship with his 19-year-old number two pick. Wiseman wasn't doing what he had to do, so they stopped starting him and they brought him off the bench. Now, Wiseman, as with most every player, has people in his corner who are telling him what he needs to do to be successful. People who've been with him a lot longer than Steve Kerr or Draymond, Draymond Green. Could be a parent, an uncle, childhood friend, AAU coach, or his brief college coach, Penny Hardaway. It could be just about anybody. That is what Draymond Green was fighting from the very beginning. And the incident against Charlotte does not in any way help him. Nor do any of the other mistakes that he's made. The fact of the matter is, he is making, if not superstar money, certainly star money. And I know he's always been a unique player, but the numbers that he's putting up do not justify what he's making. His personal game has fallen off at a time when he's making the most. So he can ill afford to have anything else to tear at his authority or his leadership. And what happened against Charlotte is just one more rip in that fabric. One that can't be mended. Guys will not forget. They may forgive, they will not forget. When, hey, we got to do this to win the game. It's like, well, why wasn't the Charlotte game that important to you? That's what's going to click through a guy's head, even if he ultimately does not say it. When Charles Barkley criticized Draymond Green, suggesting that he needed to be careful about speaking out, uh, in much the same way he criticized him as just a good player and that he was the least famous person in the boy band, uh, but thought he was the reason that everybody was coming to see that boy band. I disagreed with all of that. But I do believe that something has happened with Draymond. I told you at the very beginning, what I loved was that there's no artifice about him, that he has a level of accountability. I also get the sense that the old line about money doesn't change you, it just makes you more of what you are, that Draymond has taken the platform that he's been given and the independence that money has afforded him, and he's now beginning to believe that he can speak on any subject, that it is his job 
uh, to do so. And I'm speaking directly about his comments about Andre Drummond and how the Cleveland Cavaliers are benching him or not playing him until they're able to trade him. And Draymond's issue was teams can do that, but if a player asks to be traded, then he is going to be fined. Look, there's a certain degree of truth with what Draymond is pointing to, which is that teams have the ability to be cavalier about players' careers. No pun intended in talking about Cleveland. And players are expected to be good soldiers, and we sometimes forget that they're human beings, and they have families and human emotions and responsibilities and fears, just like all of us. Being a great athlete does not make you exempt from those events. And I, whenever I see an announcement or a press release that so, such and such player has been waived, I always think, what happens to them now? Because they were living the sweet life. And chances are, their preparation to make that sweet life, to achieve reaching the NBA, very few have prepared to be anything else because it is all-consuming in order to get there. Just had a conversation with Simeon Rice and Jeremy Roenick about this very thing. Like, if you want to be great, you have to be all consumed by what you do. Simeon was talking about how he passed up an opportunity to play golf with Tiger Woods and Michael Jordan because he was playing and that's where his focus needed to be. It was in season. He thought to be great, this is what I needed to do. And even if you don't, to be as great as you can be, for some people it's simply you need that complete and all-encompassing absorption simply to make the NBA. And now... For one reason or another, you're no longer in the NBA. What do you do now? Do you go to Europe? Do you go to the G League? What about your kids? What about where you're living? It throws a wrench in guys' lives. I understand it. The problem with Draymond Green speaking out is that he didn't know what was going on with Andre Drummond, just as he didn't know with what was going on with Blake Griffin. Both players in the exact situation. Now, I myself didn't know whether the Andre Drummond situation was a, an agreement between the player, his agent, and the team, but I've been able to determine that that is the case with Blake and the Detroit Pistons. He's not playing by mutual agreement because they don't want him to get hurt and because they are moving in a different direction. Same with the Cleveland Cavaliers. It's not as if they put Andre Drummond on the shelf and Andre Drummond wanted to play. He's okay with it. And yet, Draymond made it sound like in this instance, this is an example of the league and teams being unfair. Now, there are situations where teams and the league are unfair. I just pointed out a couple of them earlier in this podcast. But this isn't one of those instances. And this is where I believe players are missing the mark in a big, big way right now. Because as a result of the financial independence that today's salaries allow, and because of social media and the various mediums and ways in which athletes can be heard and have their voices out there, they have lost sight of the fact that there is still a method 
to be effective. It's simply because you have the platform and simply because you can say anything you want does not mean that you shouldn't be careful about what you say and what you know or what you pretend to know. Not if you want your voice and what you have to say have any impact or meaning. It's taken me a while to reach this understanding because as someone who's covered the league for 20 plus years, I always wondered why do people not take these athletes seriously or why do they rebel when a player talks about his experiences when it comes to social justice or being uh, experiencing prejudice? Why do people not believe it's true or simply contest it or say, I don't want to hear about that? Because I can tell you as someone who's spent a lot of time around players, both when they're on the court and off the court and been in instances, look, I've seen it. I've seen... I've seen the switch. I've seen when someone sees a player, a black athlete, and they just think they're a black person. And then they realize, oh, that's a famous black person. That's a black athlete. And the switch in their attitude is remarkable. It goes from wary or trepidation, or sometimes even fear, to suddenly welcoming and in awe. I mean, it happens like that. And so they realize that all of their relatives and their friends experience the first part, but never the second. And that the second doesn't have anything to do with their skin. It has to do with being an athlete. And for anybody out there who thinks, well, I cheer for black athletes. I'm not racist. Yeah, no, you can be plenty racist and cheer for black athletes because you're cheering for them as entertainers and for how they can make your life better. They're a commodity, not a person. What I've come to realize though is that the vast majority of people out there have not had my experience. They haven't been that close to a professional athlete or been around athletes in those unscripted circumstances, those out in the public situations where you see that happen and then you see the impact you see the look in the athlete's eyes when they realize what has just happened and how that creates a guard but i get it i get that and so but the second part still is okay so why do you not believe that this athlete who says we need to fight social justice black people are being treated unfairly why do people not want to hear that from a professional athlete? And there are plenty of people who do not. And I came to realize it's because of the optics. The player is sitting up there. You know what he makes. He's a millionaire. He's wearing a $3,000 suit. He's carrying a Gucci bag. He's wearing a $50,000 watch and he may have on a $100,000 chain. What the person watching and hearing this is thinking is you're telling me how you are mistreated or you've been mistreated. 
But it looks like things have turned out pretty well and you're certainly not being mistreated now and it seems as if you have way more than I have. So what actually are we talking about here? There's a reason politicians, when they go out in public or they make a public appearance, especially when it has to do anything with workers or blue collar events, they take their jacket off, they roll up their sleeves, they loosen their tie. They try to look like a man of the people. They try to have the appearance, I'm one of you. NBA players don't, by and large, do that. They've done less and less of that. It's a byproduct simply of the financial freedom that they have and the fits and all of that. The average person out there is not spending money on the outfits that players are wearing routinely. It's one thing to wear it into the uh, arena. And there's nothing, uh, um, look, uh, this is not criticism. This is just the reality. If you want to be a spokesman, if you want to be a social justice warrior, then you have to consider the complete picture. You have to dedicate yourself to being as effective as you can in being that and doing that. Or you have no grounds for complaining when people don't listen to you or don't take you seriously or question the validity of what you're saying because they're looking for an excuse to do that. And it's vitally important to work hard at not giving them that. The other part is not lecturing. People don't want to be lectured. It's just the reality. It's one of the things that when I'm either coaching someone or I'm teaching my kids or whatever it might be, I am very conscious of my pronouns. I try to talk about my experience. I, I, not you. When I, when I start using the pronoun you, it generally leads to you need to do this. And I just know how I react to that. Don't tell me what I need to do, especially if I don't know you or I may not be able to relate to you. If you're trying to convince me of something, I don't need you to tell me what I need to do or what I need to believe. When someone says, I've seen this experience, I've seen this situation before, and this is what we did and this is what happened, good or bad, I'm all ears when it comes to that because they're giving me facts. They're giving me the benefit of what? Of their experience. Just simply telling me what I should do, well, why should I do that? That's my first question. Why should I do it the way that you're telling me to do it? Now, in the case of Draymond Green and the Warriors, well, Andrew Wiggins and Kelly Oubre, and uh, they've all seen them win championships. So when Draymond says we should do it this way, I still hope that he's explaining we do it this way because of this, because so we can do this. But at least he, he already has that credibility. They've literally seen what he's asking them to do, work and be successful. That's why coaches who already have a ring and go in to coach a team, Doc Rivers going into Philadelphia, it gives him a certain amount of authority and credibility walking in the door because the players know He's been someplace that I want to get to, and he knows how. I assume he knows how to get there, and I don't. So I'm willing to listen. 
that is not the situation that Draymond Green finds himself in right now with the Warriors. They're not a championship caliber team. And Draymond Green may be trying to reinvent himself, but I don't get the sense that he's trying to reinvent himself as a basketball player, which is what needs to happen. Or maybe not even reinvent himself, but get back to who he was. Get back to that guy who was the second round pick, who the first time, I'll never forget, when his his phone was blowing up with messages because he'd had his first big game. And he was kind of starry-eyed looking at 600 messages had come in since the end of the game or during the game because he was having such a great performance and how thrilled he was at that. Draymond has lost... I feel has lost some touch with who that guy was. And that guy was at the heart of his success. As I said, I feel like he's reinventing himself, but it's not as a player. And yet playing is still where he makes his money. That's where he has his greatest visibility. And that, to be honest, I believe, is where he still has a tremendous amount of value. I'm not going to say that he has more value. As a guy from Detroit and all the issues in in Michigan or a guy from Michigan and and all the issues that are up uh, in that area, there's a great deal that he can do. And because of his personality and his visibility, he has has potential to do great things uh, beyond the court. This is not a, by any means, a shut up and dribble suggestion. But there is, your the heart of who he is and his success still is as a basketball player. And for me, if you are great at one thing, it doesn't necessarily suggest that you're great at everything. You can be, it is possible, but that needs to be proved. So simply because you're a great basketball player and you're black, And that doesn't necessarily mean to me that you can be a leader in the social justice movement because there takes, there are tactics to it. There's a way to do it and a way to do it effectively. And Draymond Green seems to be coming up short in both areas, both in his role as a leader with the Warriors and in speaking out and using his platform. Situations like the Andre Drummond one where he spoke out, and I don't care how many people on Twitter or uh, wherever are applauding him and saying, yeah, way to go, way to speak out. Not when you've got it wrong. And when people of authority, the people who, the real people that you need to convince if you're going to make change, it's the people in the league. It's the owners. It's the GMs. And when you misrepresent a situation, Do you publicly like that and call them out? Do you think they're going to meet you halfway? Do you think they're going to look at it and say, hey, you know what, Draymond's right. We need to approach this a different way. Or are they going to look at it and say, this dude doesn't know what he's talking about, barking up the wrong tree. And that is easy to then dismiss the issue at hand, even when the issue is real. All right, I'm climbing down off of the soapbox now. And that does it for this episode of Buker Friendless, subsidiary of Buker and Friends, and part of the United WeCast Network. 
Please rate and review the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. We've gone a little stagnant on the reviews and the stars. I'm asking you to keep that rolling if you would. It means a lot to our sponsors. It means a lot to me. It's all I ask of you in listening to this podcast. In our next episode, I'll get into something that I broached on Doug Gottlieb's podcast about the state of the game. He asked me a couple of questions. I was down on the way the game is being played in the NBA at this point, but I'm not one to simply look at the negatives. I want to come up with solutions. So I'm going to present a few things. I mentioned it with Nick Nurse when he was a guest on the show a couple episodes back about what could be done to change or elevate the way the game is being played. All that in the next podcast. In the meantime, as always, thanks for listening. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.